Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 11, A Slave No More. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about a woman who escaped out of slavery into the freedom of Christ, Saint Josephine Bakita. Josephine Bakita was born around 1869 in the village of Olgosa in the Darfur region of Sudan in Central Africa. Her uncle was a chief among the Daju people, a pagan hill tribe known for their intricate tattoos, among other things, and by her own recollection, she had a blissful childhood. She would later write of her early years, I lived a very happy and carefree life, without knowing what suffering was. But Josephine Bakita, in those early years, was known neither as Josephine nor Bakita. We don't actually know her birth name. Not even Josephine herself, as an adult, could remember what she had been called by her own parents. For in 1877, when she was just seven or eight years old, Josephine's happy childhood came to an abrupt end when she was kidnapped by Arabic slavers. The Arabic slave trade was nothing new in Africa. It had been going on for more than 1,200 years by the time Josephine became its victim. Today, of course, we're all rightly familiar with the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade, in which European merchants transported some 12 million African slaves to the New Worlds between the 15th century and the 19th. But we're far less familiar with the slave trade that had been operating within Africa itself long before the arrival of Europeans. This sordid business had been carried out by Arabic merchants since at least the 7th century, when the followers of Muhammad built their vast empire across the Middle East. The new Muslim rulers of the region set about buying and capturing sub-Saharan Africans for sale across the Islamic world and beyond, using them as laborers, soldiers, and concubines. The profits must have been vast, for as early as the year 813, Muslim traders were selling African slaves as far away as China. We don't know the exact number of human beings who fell victim to this traffic. It began in the early Middle Ages, after all, in largely illiterate societies that kept few written records. But it's clear that the Arabs trafficked at least as many African people as their later European counterparts, and did so over a much longer period of time, with apparently no moral difficulties. Islam, unlike Christianity, never condemned slavery. It was assumed throughout the Muslim world 
that infidels could and should be enslaved. Within sub-Saharan Africa, too, slavery was a long-standing and seemingly unquestioned practice among the pagans. It was simply taken for granted that warring tribes would sell captives into slavery, and there was never a shortage of wars between tribes. Only with the coming of Christianity, backed up by the guns of the British Empire, did the Arabic slave trade face a challenge. The British had taken an interest in Egypt since the Napoleonic Wars, and by Josephine's day, they had effectively taken over the governments of the country as advisors to its native elite. One of their first priorities was to end the slave trade with the Sudan, from which the Egyptians bought most of their slaves. On paper, they successfully abolished the Sudanese slave trade in 1877, the very same year that Josephine was kidnapped. But, in practice, the British, being only advisors to the Egyptian governments, lacked the real political and military might to enforce the ban. Europeans had yet to make contact with the African interior, this being several years before the rush to claim colonies across the continent. So Arabic slavers continued to operate across the Sudan in the late 19th century, and the young Josephine was among their victims. Her sister, too, had been captured several years earlier. Josephine would never see her, or anyone else in her family, again. Kidnapped from her home and chained to a slaver's caravan, Josephine was forced to walk 600 miles across the desert to the market of Al-Ubayid, an oasis town in the middle of the Sudan. During the long, hot, thirsty journey, which often claimed the lives of its victims, she was bought and sold at least twice by different slavers. It was during this arduous march that her captors gave her the name by which she is still known to us, Bakita, meaning lucky in Arabic. Perhaps they meant it as a cruel joke, or perhaps they thought it would be attractive to buyers. Either way, we know that they treated her terribly, and even forced her to convert to Islam, though it's not clear that she was ever instructed in her new religion. Given all the hardships she endured in those days, all while she was still a small child, we cannot be too surprised that she forgot her birth name. For many years to come, she would be simply Bakita. Upon her arrival in Al-Ubayid, she was brought by a wealthy Arabic man, who gave her as a maid to his daughters. This was, at first, an improvement over being dragged through the desert, but her new life in the city soon proved as cruel as the wastes. As a punishment for accidentally breaking a vase, Josephine was beaten so badly that she couldn't work for a whole month. When she finally recovered, her owners decided they had had enough of her, and she was sold again 
at the market. Eventually, she ended up being purchased by a Turkish general, the Sudan being nominally part of the Ottoman Empire. The general, in turn, gave her as a servant to his wife and his mother-in-law. These women were exceedingly cruel to their slaves, and seemed to relish beating Josephine daily. As Josephine would later recount, quote, During all the years I stayed in that house, I do not recall a day that passed without some wound or other. When a wound from the whip began to heal, other blows would pour down on me. End quote. In accordance with Sudanese custom, the general's wife decided to mark her new slave with scars. I'll spare you the details of the practice. Suffice to say that by the time her mistress was done with her, Josephine had received no fewer than 114 scars across her upper body. It was, ironically enough, an Islamic holy war in defense of the slave trade that freed Josephine from her cruel mistress. As I mentioned earlier, the British had tried to abolish the Sudanese slave trade in 1877, but they lacked the power to enforce it. Well, the man behind this campaign for abolition was one of the best-known figures of the Victorian age, Major General Charles George Gordon. Gordon was already a famous hero of the British Empire by 1877, when he was named Governor General of the Sudan. He had won his fame fighting in China against the murderous Taiping rebels, earning the nickname Chinese Gordon, and the admiration of the Chinese people. He had a genuine respect for non-European cultures and for non-Christian religions. He did not at all fit the caricature of the arrogant colonialist you always find in modern media. But there was one issue on which the otherwise tolerant Gordon was uncompromisingly Western, and that was his hatred of slavery. Gordon was a passionate abolitionist, and despite his limited resources and restricted powers, he did everything he could to enforce the ban on the slave trade as governor of the Sudan. By the early 1880s, these efforts, along with Gordon's other reforms to establish lawful order and to protect human rights in the region, had gained him many enemies among the Muslim populace, who benefited from the old ways and resented these foreign encroachments. Gordon's opponents rallied around a religious leader who declared himself the Mahdi, the Islamic Messiah, and soon launched an open jihad against the Anglo-Egyptian governments of the Sudan. The war which followed was one of the most dramatic tales of the Victorian age, and I won't attempt to retell it. There are countless books and films about General Gordon's campaign against the Mahdi, his struggles with his own governments, his eccentric personality, which, depending on how you view it, might have been saintly or insane, and his heroic final stand at Khartoum, capital of the Sudan. For us, it's enough to say that by 1883, the Mahdi's rebellion had reached al-Ubayid, the oasis town where Josephine was a slave of the Turkish general's wife. 
The general had become so disturbed by the jihadis, who despised the old Ottoman authorities as much as the British newcomers, that he fled the region and sold Josephine when he passed through Khartoum. Had she been sold to another Muslim master, Josephine's cruel slavery might have continued. But Providence was looking out for her. She was purchased instead by the man who would go on to give her freedom, the Italian ambassador in the Sudan, Callisto Legnani. The Catholic Italian, of course, came from a country where slavery had not existed for centuries, and he treated Josephine far more like a respected servant than a piece of property. She would never again be beaten. For the next year, Josephine, now a teenager, was shown basic human decency for the first time since her kidnapping. And when Khartoum itself came under attack from the jihadis in 1884, the 15-year-old Josephine begged her master to take her with him as he fled the city. Lenyani agreed, and together they escaped Khartoum on camelback, riding 400 miles over deserts and hills to the coast of the Red Sea. There, at the ancient port of Suakin, whose crumbling coral ruins you can still see today, the pair boarded a ship to Italy, and were finally free of the chaos in the Sudan. Once they had safely landed in Genoa, Legnani arranged a role for Josephine as a nanny in the house of his friend Augusto Michieli, a businessman who had fled the Sudan with them and would be able to help a Sudanese girl adjust to European society. We can only imagine how strange this all must have seemed to Josephine, who had only known a life of slavery thousands of miles away. Her new status in Italy was not entirely clear. She had been purchased as a slave by an Italian abroad, but Italian law, going back to the Middle Ages, had never formally recognized slavery. And of course, slavery had been abolished all over Europe by this point in history. Josephine became more or less a domestic servant for Michieli and his wife Maria, but they seemed to have treated her well and took her on their business trips back and forth between Italy and the Sudan. If she had been set completely free upon her arrival in Italy, a country where she didn't speak the language and knew nothing of the culture, she almost certainly would have fallen into desperate poverty. So it seems that her time with the Michielis worked out for the best, despite her uncertain legal status. After three years with the family in 1888, Josephine was left in the care of the Canossian sisters in Venice, an order of nuns dedicated to education, catechesis, and taking care of the sick. The reason was simple. The Michielis wanted to move to the Sudan permanently. During her stay with the Canossian sisters, Josephine learned all about the Catholic faith and became deeply moved by the beauty of its teachings. As Josephine would later write, quote, Those holy mothers instructed me with heroic patience and introduced me to that God who from childhood I had felt in my hearts without knowing who he was. End quote. 
Maria Michieli, her old mistress, wanted Josephine to join the family back in the Sudan, but Josephine steadfastly refused. Maria insisted, apparently still viewing Josephine as her servants, and eventually they went to court to resolve the matter. On the 29th of November, 1889, the court ruled that Josephine had never been anyone's slave, legally speaking. Slavery had, after all, been illegal in the Sudan for years, and it had no standing whatsoever in Italy. Finally recognized as a free woman, the 20-year-old Josephine decided to stay in the Canossian convents and commit herself to the service of God. The following year, on the 9th of January, 1890, Josephine received the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and First Holy Communion from the Patriarch of Venice. That's the title of the Archbishop, by the way, owing to the Byzantine heritage of Venice. The Patriarch who received her into the Church was none other than Giuseppe Sarto, better known today as Pope St. Pius X. The girl who had long been known as Bakita, the name given to her by her enslavers, now chose her own name as a Christian. Josephine Margaret Fortunata, that last being a Latin translation of Bakita, Lucky. Three years later, in 1893, she was accepted as a novice of the Canossian Sisters, and on the 8th of December, 1896, she took her final vows. For the rest of her long life, Josephine would be a Bride of Christ at the Canossian convent in Schio, to the west of Venice. When she wasn't serving her fellow sisters in the day-to-day -day running of the convents, she often traveled to other convents to share her remarkable story and train missionaries bound for Africa. She became well-known for her gentle voice and smile, being nicknamed Madre Moretta, Black Mother, by her loving sisters. Living all the way through the World Wars, she developed a reputation as a living saint. Living all the way through the World Wars, she developed a reputation as a living saint and offered great hope to the people of Schio, who trusted in her prayers to keep the community safe. Though the town was bombed by the Allies in World War II, not one person in Schio was killed. In her final years, Josephine suffered the pain and disability of old age with a cheerful attitude. When confined to a wheelchair, she would reply to anyone who asked how she was doing with a smile and the words, as the master desires. She even gave thanks to her captors of long ago, those Arabic slavers who had taken her from her village. If I were to meet the slave traders who kidnapped me, she said, and even those who tortured me, I would kneel and kiss their hands, for if that did not happen, I would not be a Christian and religious today. The Lord has loved me so much. We must love everyone. 
We must be compassionate. For Josephine, loving one's enemies meant an awful lot more than it does for most of us. But she still found it in her heart to love her enslavers. I can't think of a better example of the right Christian attitude than her own words. Be good, love the Lord, pray for those who do not know him. What a great grace it is to know God. Even in the face of terrible adversity and abuse, we ought to remember, with Josephine, that's Quote, the very best thing for us is not what we consider best, but what the Lord wants of us. End quote. It's only through the cross that we can arrive at the resurrection. Josephine died of natural causes on the 8th of February. 1947. As she lay dying, a visitor told her that the day was Saturday, the day devoted to our Blessed Mother, Mary. Josephine's response would prove to be her last words. Yes, I'm so happy. Our Lady. Our Lady. She went to the Lord that night. Just over a decade later, in 1958, Pope St. John XXIII opened her cause for canonization. And in the year 2000, Pope St. John Paul II would at last name her a saint of the church. St. Josephine Bakita is commemorated on the 8th of February, the day of her death, in the Catholic Church. She is the patroness of the Sudan and of human trafficking victims. Even today, around the world, there are far too many people in need of her prayers. May St. Josephine Bakita, freed by Christ, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.